Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm Matt. And I'm James Mendes Hodes. What's good? <laughs> so each each month on Spectology, we pick a book, read it, and talk about it. Uh, this is our post-read episode for The Brown Girl in the Ring by Nalo Hopkinson. Uh, if you, This is going to be like a very spoiler-heavy episode. We do spoilers from the beginning, so if you'd like to hear a non-spoiler kind of version of what the book is about, I would recommend going to our 11.1 episode, which we released uh, at the beginning of February. Um, Mendez is also on that, so you get to you know hear us talk about the book, the context of it, and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, today we're going to be getting into the book in depth. Um, we're going to kind of jump right into it here. But first, I wanted to give Mendez a chance to just introduce himself briefly again. Again, there's a, a long introduction of all about we talk a lot about his work in the RPG community in the um, in the first episode. But yeah, Mendez, how you doing? Hey, um, so yeah, I'm James Mendez Hodes. Most people call me Mendez. I'm based in the great New York metropolitan area. Um, I have an academic background in uh, West African religion and uh, Asian classics. And uh, now I work as a writer, editor, uh, developer, and cultural consultant in education and in role-playing games and other kinds of gaming. And you have and uh, your some of your most recent projects include, for example, the role-playing game that you just kickstarted. Yes, Thousand Arrows is a, a role-playing game um, powered by the apocalypse. If you're a, you're a nerd and you know what that means, it's about the <laughs> Japanese warring States period. So if you like samurai drama and tragedy, uh, look out for that game to be, uh, coming your way soon. Yeah. I, I, I helped kickstart that and I've been, I've been enjoying getting the updates and stuff on that. So that's yeah, really, we're all really big cool. fans. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. And then also just a quick shout out to some of your uh, essays that can be found online at your website. They're really, really good, really Thank insightful you. stuff. Yes, you can follow me at uh, jamesmendeshodes.com and I write about uh, nerd culture and religion and uh, race and the intersections of those things. My uh, my recent essay series I just started is about orcs. <laughs> Very yeah, cool. Super fun and interesting. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Big fan of that. Nice. Cool. So yeah, so um, I, you know, I think the way we usually start these off. Uh, yeah. And, you know, thank you again for being here. Uh, Mendez, like last conversation was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about the book specifically. And I kind of figured we'd just talk um, kind of like how we liked the book. Um, it's the first time I've read it. I know it's the first time Matt's read it. And this is the second or third time you've read it, right? Oh, uh, no, this is this is the first time I've read it. Oh, OK, cool, cool. Yeah, this um, is my first Nalo Hopkins in anything. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, we, uh, yeah. What did, what did everyone like think about the book? Matt, maybe you want to start like, well, how did, how did you like the book? I really liked it a lot. I found it like super, uh, engaging and like propulsive, which is that, that word that people love to use when they're like being like, you know, nerding out about books. But I mean, basically from the 50% mark on, I couldn't put it down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I loved it. Cool. Any any particular like, you know, specific things that you really liked or, or didn't like or kind of, you know, what your what your overall recommendation on it would be? Um, Yeah, it's really interesting. Actually, to me, it's sort of there's a lot of things that we will touch on throughout this episode. Um, I know that you wanted to talk about, but I it it um, it didn't it 
So, okay, <clears throat> I read a, another review of it on um, Strange Horizons, and mm -hmm. uh, the, the reviewer there said something that I agree with totally, which is that a lot of books from the late 90s that won the big sci-fi awards, such as this one, this one, you know, won the uh, the John Campbell Award, for instance, and mm -hmm. a couple of others, um, which we talk about more in the pre-read. A lot of the other books from that period that won big awards kind of haven't stuck around as much. This is a book that still feels really relevant and fresh, yeah. despite having been written 20 years ago, more than. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that's really compelling about it is how it combines a lot of, um, it combines a kind of um, social, psychological, emotional core that feels like timeless, you know, issues of, um, motherhood and, and childhood and how do we relate to our family and how do we grow up um, with some social issues that are, I guess, very much of this moment, like mm -hmm. decaying, decaying cities and the decline of our, our, of our, of our like social fabric and the, the kind of the, how we struggle to deal with the soft apocalypse that's happening mm -hmm. around us constantly. Um, so just kind of literally what it's about in the sense of those two things is really compelling. And then it's, you know, I think it's written like a, it's like a very sort of story-ish story. It's yeah, very much, a good way of putting it. very much written in a way of like, um, I'm spinning this yarn to you and like sit down and listen kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, which appeals to me. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So I'll, I'll, I'll take it a little bit. And, you know, I definitely really enjoyed the story. One thing that I did have to do because we're recording these really close back to back was I essentially read it in three sittings. Um, so I appreciate that it was, like you said, propulsive and really, you know, uh, like surprisingly, not easy to read, but surprisingly like fun to read in large chunks. Oh, like yeah. I don't necessarily usually sit down for like three hours and read a thing. Um, but I did that multiple times with this book um, and didn't get bored with it at any point while doing that, which is which was a lot of fun. Um, you know, my reading tends to be more in like fits and starts than that. And then um, <clears throat> that said, I think the, uh, you know, so I agree with everything you said, except for I think maybe the like, the spinning a yarn thing is sometimes we've talked about this before in the podcast, slightly less successful for me. Like I think I have a slightly harder time with that kind of storytelling technique. And the one thing I will say in particular was that I sometimes found it difficult to be emotionally engaged in the story. Like I was really intellectually engaged with it. I love what it did with a sort of combining of like magic and religion and science fiction and like, like not like kind of just like flattening out all of those different distinctions and having this like really cool world building and interesting characters. But at times, you know, these like big emotional moments would happen in the story and I wouldn't necessarily feel that emotionally engaged with it. Stuff like when, uh, when the grandmother Groshan was killed like it didn't resonate with me at all and also the body horror was less actually horrific for me than i expected that stuff to be um which is you oh, know actually, i know as much me as like the book itself but yeah. i thought it was kind of interesting 
should we actually uh just hold up one second do a quick like content warning thing just because oh that's a good idea we're gonna, we're gonna be talking about that. yeah there's a lot of violence basically yeah. um and some body horror stuff and some and like extreme stuff. like medical torture yeah. violence i mean it yeah. gets it gets torture. very explicit very intense there's a lot of like both physical and psychological torture and yeah it's like think maybe the most violent and like explicitly violent book that we've read for the podcast uh there was there's been torture in other books yeah but not as much on screen it's a lot of like off screen or kind of you see the effects not the actual happening of it it definitely Mm -hmm. it it felt it felt like it, it was very explicit um in in that stuff um and I, I mean, like not in a also not in a glorifying violence kind of way. I think we talked about this in the pre-read. It definitely felt like there was nothing about it that was like, oh, look how cool this violence is, uh, which can get to me sometimes. Instead, it felt very much like it was there to be scary and for you to take it seriously. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. also like we talked about, there's some stuff about like motherhood and parenthood and family violence um, that comes up as well as like depictions of postpartum depression and, you know, that kind of like uh, the the motherhood and the state of being a parent yeah. to a young infant that come up. And, and, and a little mind control as well, if that's, you know, no. the sort of some of the some of that stuff can can have a whole a whole separate type of horrific, you know. Yep uh feeling associated with it so anyway yeah that's that's most the stuff i think yeah there's a lot of racism too yeah a lot of yeah and we'll also be talking about that a lot ourselves so yeah so there's there's some racism there's uh religious content and not really there isn't a huge amount of straight up religious intolerance uh the book isn't quite about that um but uh yeah, if religious stuff uh, sets you off, a lot of this is about religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's maybe, you know, I, I do, the, the religion is stuff that I really liked about it too because mm-hmm. it's about like a religion that is not one that I have any experience with personally and it, you know, takes it very seriously. Like sometimes science fiction books can take religion as just like, like take it as a straw man or the worst possible version of the religion. And like mm-hmm. this book doesn't do that at all. Yeah. That's something we've talked about in a lot of different contexts on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And this is a whole other way of dealing with it, I think, than, than uh, some of the other. Oh yeah. I mean, it's like of- comparing this to 10 billion days and a hundred billion nights, which we actually just got finished doing in the timeline of this podcast is, you know, an interesting compare and contrast of like, Oh yeah. <laughs> what does it's blasphemy also- <laughs> mean in both of these yeah. books? <laughs> it's also interesting because this book came out, um, I think like a year after the Sparrow and it won like, mm. or like a year before, like right around when the Sparrow did. Yeah. And it won, it won one of the same awards but it's like to me this book is much better and holds up much better oh yeah um and anyway just a kind of interesting (laughs) historical note no that's a very good point um i mean this to the sparrow is like (laughs) ants to elephants um so yeah so uh mendez what did what did you think of the the book having read it now uh i i really really liked it it was it was very much um like a, this book is it, it felt as if it had been written like 
like someone who knew me had, <laughs> had been like following me around for a few years and was like, I'm going to write a book that Mendez will really, really like. <laughs> oh, that's um, so good. Yeah, that's such a great that. feeling. Yeah. And so it had, it had all of this stuff in, in there that I really liked. I, I liked being familiar with the African religious background of the mm-hmm. book and being able to notice things um, that I, I, I don't usually get to feel like clever when I read a book because <laughs> um, I, I tend to I, I tend to avoid books and movies and TV that that have like um, that fetishize intelligence and that make you like guess yeah. a lot of things like I find Sherlock kind of frustrating and <laughs> I watch we've Westworld. actually talked about that here before too yeah, yeah that's a weird conversation on that yeah like yeah. I watched the first episode of Sherlock and I figured out the mystery exactly 10 minutes before Sherlock did and I felt really good and I was like so the whole thing's gonna be like this right and then it was not it was not like that <laughs> um and every time they solved a mystery I was like I don't believe it that nope doesn't make any sense to me and (laughs) i I was just talking about about westworld someone said to me recently oh i finished westworld season two uh who wants to talk about it and i was like oh i I do but i hope you can explain it to me because (laughs) i don't know what happened um um, so so that kind of thing like kind of kind of frustrates me and a lot of a lot of nerd media which uh, places intelligence above all other virtues as a virtue yeah. uh, really annoys me. But it was cool to, for example, in the first scene with the zombie um, from like half a paragraph of description, I was like, ah, OK, that's a zombie. Right. That is cool. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would never have known that. And yeah. that one of the one of the other cool things that I got out of this book was was I think like Adrian said, I mean, just a chance to interact with these tropes for the first time. Mm-hmm. I mean, to, to see them in action, yeah. to, to learn about them, to, to realize at the end of the, like when they, when the book finally explains that that's a zombie to be like, Oh wow. Interesting. That's yeah. A zombie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I had that same experience with the zombie thing. It's like when the book explained it, it was like, Oh, Oh, okay. I see what's going on. Interesting. Here. Yeah. yeah. The, the other yeah. thing I will say actually is that just our conversation in the pre-read was like really helpful for feeling like I was grounded in the book too. Mm-hmm. Like definitely that feeling of like, Oh, like, like some of the God's names would come up and I'd be like, Oh, that's mm-hmm. the goddess of storms. I recognize her from our conversation uh-huh. yeah. and from black God's drums, like another, you know, novella that I read a couple of months ago. It's like, Oh, this is cool. Kind of like almost, you know, not expertise, but like building up just some sort of awareness of the like themes and tropes and characters and, you know, sort of like the elements of these, this Afro-Caribbean like religious theming was and world building was really fun. So I, you know, yeah. I feel like I got like the the tiniest hint of like, you know, less I feel clever and more like, ooh, I feel like I'm learning something, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is nice. Yeah, there's, absolutely. there's few things as addicting as the feeling that you're learning something from, from a book. Yeah. yeah. And that's like the best. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, I think some of that helps that the book does take the religious theme so seriously. Like it's not mm-hmm. a send up of any of it. Yeah. Um, and that's just so key. Yeah. It really is. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about, I don't, I, I think it may be even worth mentioning right now really quick, just because yeah, it totally. kind of, I don't want to spend too long on it, but it also kind of underlies a lot of how I've come to think about the whole book. Uh, in a lot of the book, I, uh, I did some, um, some poking around and I found, I finally managed to find a copy of uh, Derek Walcott's Tijon and his brothers, which is, uh, if you read a lot of the epigrams at the beginning of chapters of 
Brown Girl in the Ring, you know, that book gets referenced a lot. A lot of the epigrams come from that play, mm-hmm. not book, play. So I found a copy on Kindle. We'll put a link to in the in the show notes. And I read through it. It's pretty short. And it turns out, you know, this book, Brown Girl in the Ring, is in a lot of ways, it's it's kind of a retelling of that play. Um, the story of that play, T. John and His Brothers, um, again, by Derek Walcott. If you don't know, Derek Walcott is um, a, a St. Lucian, St. Lucian. He's from St. Lucia. Um uh, uh, poet and playwright um, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Um, he is uh, really, really interesting, uh, and his work is kind of considered to be very, um, very influential in like not just the Caribbean but Afro Afro diaspora communities. I think I first heard about him from like reading some blog post of Tanahasi Coates's like hmm. a really long time ago because he was talking about some African diaspora reading that he was doing. Um, anyway, so, uh, you know, he's a, he's a big deal, you know, obviously Nobel prize and this play is one of his, uh, it's from like 1958. So it's one of his earlier works. Um, but it's, um, it's still per- performed. I, I found out it was actually put on near where I live like f- three or four years ago. Um, which is pretty cool. Anyway, the story of the play is there is a, a mother, um, with who has three sons who's really really poor in an unnamed Caribbean island. Um, she lives in the middle of the woods in a shack, and her three sons are named Grosjean, Mijon, and Tijon, mm-hmm. except without the feminine endings because they're men. Right. So in one Brown thing Girl in the that's Ring, maybe worth pointing out too is the like grow comes from gross, which is large. The me yeah. comes from mead, which is medium, and the T right. comes from petite, which is small. Exactly. So like each of these names yep. is like. You know, Big John, Little John, and Medium John in French. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And 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 Jean is like just the, the female version of that. Mm-hmm. So um, in Brown Girl in the Ring, there's the same three names, um, all women. Um, in this, in the original play, they're, they're, they're three brothers. Um, they each, the story of the play is basically a kind of a fable about each of the brothers meeting the devil in turn. And the first two, uh, Grosjean and Mijon, are defeated by the devil and killed. And the, the, it falls to the final young brother to um, outwit the devil. Um, mm-hmm. But he is, of course, the end of the play, spoiler alert, the end of the play <laughs> is that he, despite outwitting the devil, the devil does not play fair. And he is also killed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the one thing that happens is, though, since he outwitted the devil, um, uh, another character, Balam, who is an unborn child, um, is allowed to be born as his payment for having outwitted the devil. Mm. Um, and so you'll note, like, all of these characters um, more or less are, are used in different ways in the... And the, and the, and the, the plot of Brown Girl in the Ring is really kind of a, a, a retelling of that same story in a way. But it's much... But it's, like, clearly uh, in, interested in taking, like, a feminist and a science fictional perspective on what... On, the original play is like super religious. It's very influenced. Derek Walcott was a, was a Methodist. He was a very committed Christian, and and he his play is like full of these sort of classical Christian ideas. And it doesn't really have a lot of Afro Caribbean religion in it. It has a little, but not compared to Brown Girl in the Ring. Brown Girl in the Ring is like okay, we'll replace the Methodism with Native Caribbean or Afro diaspora religions. We'll replace the men with women. And we'll replace the Caribbean island rural or like non-civilizational setting in the middle of the woods with a city. Mm-hmm. And 
but then a fallen we'll see what city happens. to, to yeah, create some exactly. of those same elements. And then we'll see what happens. So it's really, really interesting comparison. I just, you know, that's kind of, I, I, I will be thinking about that as we, as we talk about the rest of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Tijan, which I, I actually found this out last week, uh, Tijan is actually a, a trickster and folkloric figure who exists throughout the Francophone world. Uh, oh, that's in, cool. In different forms. And uh, Tijan, uh, especially here, um, like, you know, where I live in the eastern United States, Tijan is most associated with Quebec. That's so cool. Yeah. I did not know that. So it's cool. So the, the Canadian Tijan is also a Canadian trickster figure who lives in the wilderness um, and is, you know, is in a lot of the where you'd see Jack, you know, in an Anglophone mm. folktale. If you're in if you're in uh, uh, Quebec, you'd hear about Tijan. So um, I was I was really excited to see that this book brought together um, a Canadian like Canadian folklore from like. Because it's set in Canada, so um, it brought together Canadian folklore <laughs> yeah. with like um, uh, with Haitian folklore, and that was that was really cool, and uh, Caribbean folklore in general. So, so that was that was awesome. That That's so cool. cool. That is a really interesting whole other layer to it that I had no idea about. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. I mean, it might be worth exploring a little bit, like the you know the story of the book and kind of like what it what it all means at the end um Mm -hmm. since it was a you know i like the book is a very kind of like plot driven novel in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and the sort of like one thing i found really interesting is that you have this big final confrontation um followed by like like the 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 denouement, the like falling action is actually a much larger chunk of the novel than a lot of science fiction like kind of action stories are. Mm. You know, there's like two or three chapters at the end of like this is what happens after everything, um, and like some of that stuff. For instance, like the 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 mammy's second husband's soul getting transported <laughs> into the baby, you know, like the, the baby who is Tijon's baby was like that now actually makes a whole lot more sense to me because it's like, Oh, it's actually this kind of like mirroring of this play. Cause yeah. I, like while reading it, like that part in particular, I was like, well, what does this mean? Like, what is actually the significance yeah. of this here? It was like one of the big questions I, I had at the, at the end of that. And also the, you know, implications of, you know what it means for like this you know old man soul that has been like tortured for 12 years to get transposed into a baby and like did the baby have a soul like what's up with that yeah. <laughs> like what happened to baby yeah. Yeah. also i just wanted to just to clarify to the readers there's actually a character who's referred to as mummy in in the in the book that's not right. just yeah <laughs> right right that's yeah. her like like uh uh yeah. groshan's name is yeah mammy mummy i don't know how to pronounce it but that's that yeah. that's how she's referred to by a lot yeah. of characters if you pronounce it with an ah uh, it sounds less like something unfortunate right that's true <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um <laughs> yeah so like in the in the play um the character balam the the unborn baby is somewhat different and the kind of the the moral of the play i guess is very different um the play basically takes this position that like you know the play is set in this in this colonial caribbean island not in a modern toronto or totally. a post right, right, apocalyptic right. toronto and so a lot of it ends up being like the one of the guises the devil takes is the white planter mm-hmm. and um one of the things that we are told at the end is that 
you know, everyone dies, the devil doesn't play fair. You know, the only thing at a certain level, the only thing that people have, like life is awful. Mm. At a certain level, the only thing we have is that we live and we have faith in God. And, and, and that has to be enough sometimes, even if our lives are terrible. Um, so it's very like bo- Job-esque in that way. Yeah. The, the, um, and, and, you know, it comes from this real place of like, yeah, the lives of, of, uh, of, of slaves on plantations and Caribbean islands were pretty right, awful. Like, obviously. Yeah. To, yeah. Like, so, you know, so the, the message, you know, at the end is the, the, the Balaam asks to be allowed to be born. It's an unborn fetus in the, mm-hmm. in the story of the play. And when it, and, and, and like at the end, it's sort of like the devil is like, why would you want to be born? You, you saw what happened to Tijon. He did everything right. He actually even defeated me, but I don't play fair. Um, and the bomb's like, I don't care. I want to live. Hmm. And, and, and so that's, it's very different. I mean, Brown Girl in the Ring has such a positive ending compared to that. It, it's a much more optimistic take on, on life. It really does. And it's interesting that it pairs that optimism with afro-caribbean themes instead of christian themes mm-hmm. um you know so uh what what you do according to the brown girl in the ring like the way that um tijon tijin is able to to win in the end the, to defeat um rudy rudy yeah yeah rudy yeah uh Rudolph. is that she yeah she calls <laughs> on she calls on basically the power of her community, her, the community of her ancestors and her gods, the community of the people who he wronged. She calls on the power of her community to like collectively overcome him mm-hmm. um, in, in a way. Um, whereas, in, whereas in the play, it's like he calls on God and, you know, God isn't really there. He's not a character. The only character is the devil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and like God doesn't do anything except provide a source of faith and like a place to go after you die. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> it's pretty brutal. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a really important observation. Uh one of the generalizations that I sometimes make about West African and Afro-Atlantic religion is that it's a religion without with with almost no private space compared to mm. the way that we the way that we conceptualize religion in uh, in like a, a Judeo-Christian Islamic world, there are all of these examples in throughout uh, a Christian mythology and throughout similar mythologies where important figures or where you, for one reason or another, are alone with God. And mm-hmm. this is something mm-hmm. that happens uh, relatively rarely um, in a West African and Afro-Atlantic religion. It's a it's a much more religious practice is much more public. I would say hmm, um, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I have an old paper I wrote in college about this at one point about like, there's like, this is not to say there is, there are no times in West African religion when you are alone with God, but a lot of the focus of the religion is much more social. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. It's interesting in the book, um, Tijin is like, uh, kind of frightened of the, of the rituals that, that, uh, that that Grosjean performs her her religious rituals, um, and her her kind of f- being frightened of them is, is sort of makes her alone in a way. Like what what's going on is that there's this community that that Grosjean has that she performs the rituals with, and Tijin by by being frightened of them is not part of that. She's just a, sort of off to the side. So it's kind of you know, it's yeah. kind of interesting. I mean, I've that that squares with voodoo with the voodoo ritual that I attended. 
was it was it was often yeah. it was often literally and kind of purposefully terrifying. Um, yeah. Oh, like interesting. Some some of the some of the spirits are super excited to get to scare you. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. Not um, not all of them, but like Ogum, for example. Um, so I was at this ritual, and a bunch of Oguns showed up and possessed people. And um, the, this ritual that I happened to go to was in Pennsylvania, and it was mostly white people, um, which was amusing at times. Um, but when the Oguns showed up, um, they like they knew there were. I was there on like a, a field trip, basically from college, and some of the other gods who showed up were like very conscious of the fact that there were random students there um and we're, we're trying to be very like educational and like get give everyone a background on what was going on like like kuzenzaka uh, who's a like an agricultural spirit was very much into like giving everyone an introduction to what was going on there and then ogun showed up and ogun was not interested in that what ogun wanted to do was grab machetes and then bend them on his forehead um and so there were a number of oguns and they were all really excited to be there and they wanted to like fight and wrestle everybody and and uh and then as as uh they eventually had to like drag one of them out of the room because he he wasn't leaving and they needed to move on with the ritual and let that person get possessed by other people or whatever. And so they're literally dragging a gun out of the room. And as they do, he, he looks over at me and he locks eyes with me and he grabs my head. Like he just reaches over and like <laughs> grabs my skull and gives me this, like I'm having the best time of my life <laughs> as they literally oh, drag him out of the room. That's so cool. Um, that's so, wild. So that yeah, is. the, uh, so the fear element is often, um, and then there, there were other, there were other spirits there who were, um, uh, like one of, one of my favorite moments from the whole thing was, um, uh, one of the Azili's, I think it was Azili Danto, um, possessed someone and, uh, she identified another, uh, another student, uh, in the group as having something to do with a, like a, a spirit who was considered married to her in certain conceptions. Um, so she grabs him and they start dancing. And at the end, she takes a big drink of, uh, of rum and then hands it over to him. And we had to explain to her and, and she can't speak. She doesn't have a, she doesn't have a tongue. Um, mm-hmm. th- we had to explain to her, no, no, he's Muslim. He, he can't drink that. And oh, wow. she was so grumpy about it. And she took like a she took a huge drink and like spat it in his face. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's so interesting. Um, <laughs> and like just made it clear like she got it, but she wasn't happy about it. Right. Yeah. So this yeah. is this is actually really interesting to hear because I grew up in a religious tradition that also deals a lot with like possession and like spirits taking over bodies and that kind of thing. And that was, you know, <clears throat> this like evangelical Christian uh, yeah, <clears throat> kind of like non-denomination. You know, we were I think the church that specifically this happened the most in was the like non-denominational evangelical church. Um but like one of the, you know, one of the elements there is speaking in tongues and getting like, you know, it's not called possession because like possession is bad, but there is, there is actual possession and like that happens and that's really scary. Um, but you know, the most frequent thing that I would see was as our 
you know, like, so it was this very small church. I think there were like a hundred people there most days, maybe, maybe fewer even. And, um, you know, particularly during like the singing and the hymnals and kind of like right after that, when you've all been doing this like ritualized chanting and singing and sort of like everyone is very like in cue and in tune with each other. Um, sometimes people would get up and either like convulse and it almost looks like seizures, although they're standing while they're doing it. So they're still in control of their kind of physicality in a way you're not with a seizure. And then, um, Sometimes, you know, what would happen would be like that person would speak in tongues. So they would speak in, you know, something that like wasn't language, but sounded like language. Um, and sometimes that was it. Sometimes they would just like speak in tongues for a while. And that was the end of it. Sometimes they would speak in tongues. And then afterwards, they would kind of come to and translate what it is they just said. Sometimes someone else would get up and translate what they would said, like someone else would become possessed and in English translate it. But from this kind of like possessed place this like trance like place um mm -hmm. and i remember from this being like like it was this was also frightening like church was always kind of weird for me like i didn't have a good relationship with church by this point in my church going career and i was i was probably 10 11 something along those lines uh maybe a little bit older by this point but um you know having that experience like, I mean, the thing about it was it was always scary. And there's always the question like I had in my head, especially at this point, like I was essentially an atheist, even if I was still going to church because I was there with my family and I was forced to question of like, what's actually happening, right? Like from this ritualistic perspective and from this atheistic perspective, like, okay, we've all done these rituals together. We have all like focused on like sacred elements within the room as well as like sacred conceptions. And we're all like so in tune with each other that some people actually like give themselves up to the ritual essentially. Um, but it's really interesting to hear other, you know, like talking to my mom about that, right? Like what happened is that like the Holy spirit came down and spoke through a person. Mm -hmm. Right. And in these, you know, Afro-Caribbean religions like X or Y, God came down and like inhabited the person. It's not the person doing the things. It's the gods doing the things. And there is an element right. to tie like the thing to me that ties both of these back is that like there is this important ritualistic fear in this, like like uh, especially in these kind of like more um you know it's not just evangelical but like really kind of like physically embodied christian evangelical religions there's a lot of like talk of the fear of god of this kind of like old testament biblical like god is scary and he'll fucking turn you into a salt pillar for being gay kind of thing yeah um <laughs> you know like like that and that's real to people that's not uh that's not a metaphor that is a literal thing that did and can still happen um you know, as are the idea of like, you know, my mom would talk frequently about how like, you know, bad dreams are literally the devil in your mind making you scared. Right. But like being scared at church was like, good, that's God making you scared. So that's the good <laughs> fear. <laughs> um, so I don't, you know, I don't know if I have like a specific point with this so much as like, it's really interesting to hear you talk about these rituals and like, you know, the element of fear in them when like that actually like very surprisingly similar to my own experience in a way that I didn't, I didn't expect necessarily. Um, and the, uh, this idea of, you know, fear in ritual and like ritual as a way to give yourself kind of like let things come out of you and give yourself up to like the group consciousness or whatever that is exactly. Um, there's a really cool book called, um, 
Randall Collins, he's a sociologist, he wrote a book called Interaction Ritual Chains that if you want to come at this from like a sociological perspective, it's really, um, I'd say it's really good. Um, Xavier Marquez, I think is his name, has a blog post that I'll link to in the show notes. It's kind of a review of that book that will give you the the, the brief overview of like kind of how these rituals across just like everything from you know sporting events to religious events to political rallies etc like how these like having people in a room together and like focusing attention can really like work to do some of this stuff and like the physiological changes it actually does create um Mm -hmm. so you know which is not you know i i want to be like like i'm not saying that like what is true or isn't true these are different ways of looking at the same thing it, it, you know i don't want to be totally like oh well obviously it's like that's all bullshit it's really this thing <laughs> it's not what i'm trying to say but um you know <laughs> regardless of how i feel about it <laughs> uh, anyway yeah. yeah that was just the sort of like that brought that brought to mind that kind of like these different types of rituals and this ritualistic fear and sort of you know this book at times i was reading it and i was like oh this is you know it's like science fiction and post-apocalyptic science fiction in particular. It's this kind of like fantasy magical realism thing. And it's also horror. Like it's straight up like mm, scary yeah, totally. and trying to be scary. And there's even some, you know, I mean like the final girl trope is kind of like an element to it with, with um, Tijon's kind of like as the one who like finishes it at the end and has to like do it through her own inner strength and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, it's sort of interesting the way that these like, literary tropes and works kind of parallel just like longer running folk tales and like religious tales and like religious ritualistic elements over time. Yeah. One of the uh, really interesting things to me is sort of what is the thing that she has that allows her to beat Rudy that her mother and her grandmother don't have, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in the, at one point she's told to sort of use her instinct which is actually a direct quote, it turns out, from the original play. That's that's how Petit Jean, you know, Tijon um, defeats the devil in the play. Whereas his middle brother was like a book-learning guy, sort of quote-unquote wise and educated. His eldest brother was very big and strong. Um, Tijon had, had nothing. He had neither of those things. All he had was like common sense, basically. He was like well brought up, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's something similar, similar we're meant to think about um, about uh, Tijin in, in in Brown Girl, like she, like she doesn't have, um, th- like her big advantage, I suppose, is that she 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 just happens to have been have gotten through childhood a little bit more intact, I guess, in a way. Like, you know, her mother and her grandmother were both really like abused by men, mm-hmm. um, and she kind of hasn't been yet, or like wasn't at the beginning of the book mm-hmm. um and and it's kind of it's really or, or at least like she's she's handled her life better she's she has this kind of inner strength I, I don't know i actually don't know how i would answer the question what is it that she has right that her mother and grandmother didn't have or like how did she win and they didn't so i would say that what she has that her mother and grandmother didn't is her mother and grandmother mm, yeah 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 that um, sounds right and I thought that was, and, and I thought this was really cool because I I find I find stories where um, your parents say something and then they turn out to be completely wrong and you need to completely reject what your parents say, um, unrealistic and unconvincing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, just because, like, I don't 
that that's not that never happens. You can never convince your parents that they're wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely something I gave up on like a long time ago. <laughs> when are you going to do that? Thanksgiving? No. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so what I uh, what I liked in this book, which uh, I thought was also a good quality that uh, the movie Moana had um, hmm. was that um, the lessons that. Uh, so there was, of course, tension between uh, Tijan and her and Mijan and Grosjean, especially between Tijan and Grosjean. But. Hmm the lessons that she was learning were they were built on and developed from the lessons that Mijan and Grosjean uh, gave her. So she was profiting, you know, she hadn't had those, the specific experiences of um, mistreatment that her mother and grandmother had. They weren't exactly the same, but because she learned from her mother and grandmother, she learned from those experiences that her mother and grandmother had. And Mm. that was actually a really comforting thought to me. Um, you know, thinking back on traumas and misfortunes that I felt in my own life. Um, one of the things that, is one of the only things thinking about those things that is comforting to me is thinking, well, okay, these things made my life objectively worse, but at some point I will be able to teach someone else something that helps them and that maybe helps them avoid having this trauma themselves, but still gives them the benefit of learning from this trauma. And I thought that this book was all about that basically. That is super interesting. I really love thinking about it that way because that's another way in which this book is like totally takes a completely different tack than than the play. The play is all about like getting good with God in a certain way or like having the right relationship to like other people. But it's a very self-centered kind of thing in a way. Like it's not the reason why uh, Tijon in the play is able to succeed has you know, in a, in some sense, he like needs the help of his community. There's this like group of animals in the forest who he's like nice to, and then they help him. But mostly, it's like it's just him. It's not he's not benefiting from the experience of his brothers. His brothers were just wrong and dumb. You know, they they just made they were they made mistakes. Right. And like he, the he first two really, brothers in the folktale. Right. He doesn't really like even acknowledge like what they did that he's going to avoid. He's just better than them. Um, or something. And I, I, so I really, I really like the way that Brown girl ha- handles this where it's, she's, yeah, like you say, she's building on the experience of her forebears and then they help her directly right. as well. Yeah. One interesting piece of that is that her mother, when, when she comes back, you know, points out like, Oh, like having you was really hard for me. And I like resented you. And like, she, she hears that and it's really hard for her to hear, but there's also that she recognizes her own behavior towards her own baby mm-hmm. that it like mirrors mm-hmm. that and is like, Oh, like, I don't want my baby to have to hear this from me. Like I want to like actually learn yeah. from that experience and get better at it and be able to see both sides, which is, you know, it is nice to think of like, Oh, like the trauma, our parents, you know, pass on is also stuff we can learn from instead of just like our own traumas. <laughs> yeah, totally. Cause so frequently it is just kind of our own traumas. And so, you know, that said, totally. I, you know, one thing I did appreciate too, in terms of this is that you see like Grosjean is not perfect. And in fact, she even like mirrors some of the, you know, like Rudy, like beat her and like knocked her around and everything. And she does some of that in like smaller ways to her children and grandchildren, right? Like she's not necessarily like super physically abusive, but she is physical with 
Tijon and with Mijon and like that affects Mm -hmm. them. Right. And it affects them in Mm -hmm. bad ways. Like it's a thing she shouldn't do. And the book is somewhat judgmental of her. I think rightly so for behaving in this way. And like, yes, it's the only way, you know, but also like, don't do that. Um, And she even kind of points that out. Like, you know, when Tijon is rough with her baby, she's like, don't do that. And Tijon's a little bit like, you fucking do that with me. Like, what right do you ha- even have to say? <laughs> and some of it, uh, yeah, yeah, some of it is this element of like, I know I'm wrong, though. And like, you don't have to be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that point, um, like, you can't help but but make that point in this book given that it is so it's so critical of violence and every time violence shows up even when violence is helping Tijan out um like the the scene where uh, I forget who it was I think it was uh uh Carfou or, or cimetière um uh uh possesses them and and uh fights off mm. the gangsters for them oh yeah yeah like yeah they win the fight but it's terrifying yeah. again <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Like, and, th- and that's another thing I think the long denouement at the end is doing. It's yep. like we have to they the book is going to make us see the results of all of this. We have to not only see her winning, but we have to see her like the real her real final character beat is her final interaction with Tony, you know, um, her her sort of like beginning the process of trying to like live with him despite what he's done. Or yeah. at least be in the same world. Yeah, as him, exactly. Despite what he's done, and right. which I thought I, was such a like such a good choice because oh, I, yeah. I felt like like as soon as Tony got introduced and as soon as we learned a little bit about Tony, I was oh, like, yeah. so he's gonna die, right? That's what <laughs> yeah. always happens to guys like this. Totally. But no, not only does he not die, but he like does everything that you would that a character like that would do in another story to deserve to die. But then he doesn't die. He has to suffer through what he's done. Yeah. And he has to suffer through the social result of what he's done. Yes. Um, so I know. actually, I, that was one thing that didn't work as well for me, honestly, particularly because of the way he is reintroduced into the community and the way that he is like forced upon Tijon at the end is this thing of like, no, you have to deal with him. He's a member of this community too. And like his member, his like membership in the community is more important than the like violence he's caused you directly was a thing that like, I mean, it felt very real, but also it felt like something like, I'm not sure that that's something I personally like as a moral espouse. Like, I think there are times when it's like worth ejecting someone from the community for, (laughs) for instance, like killing some of the most important members of that community. Um, and so there, there's, there's elements of that from like, from, from the perspective of like Tijon's character development, I agree. It's actually really great from this perspective of like, we're not just going to kill him to give the reader the satisfaction of him being dead because like, being satisfied someone is dead is probably not a good feeling to have or like both of those were good. The particular way that he is like a member of that community at the end and like the moral being like, Oh, well, Tijon needs to kind of learn to forgive in some way. I'm not sure if I told that didn't totally work for me. That, well, that's the thing though. I'm looking over it now and she doesn't actually have to, the choice is left. Uh, the choice is left to her. Um, and it, uh, so like, you know, just looking over this whole thing, right. Um, so Jenny shows up, she leads Tony up and Tony, uh, Tony gives an apology a shot. 
does doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so he he says all the words. I mean, like, no, like by the by the by the low standard that politician apologies have set over the past couple of years. I think the past Tony couple did okay. of days. Jesus. A couple of days. Yeah. yeah. Like, let's not even. Yeah. Like yeah. If, fair, fair. If, if a politician could make an apology, like almost as good as Tony does right here, where the, he actually says, I am sorry for the thing that I did to you. Right. That's mm-hmm. like, whoa, who does that? <laughs> um, <laughs> like, this is like, oh, all right. That's that seems pretty good by today's standards. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, then it says, um, OK, so. Uh, Tijon looked into his eyes, feeling none of the desperate obsession she used to have for Tony, none of the longing for him to make her right, her life right either. And to her surprise, no hatred, really just pity. Her heart was free. She couldn't forgive him yet, but maybe one day. Right, right. No, and that's, that's true. And I think that there's a, you know, that is an important element of like, some of it is just her moving on like the, you know, the kind of opposite of love being hate thing. And it's like, no, she actually is like moved on fully by not feeling either. And like, she can like, that's the, yeah. not, not just she can, but like she, that's a thing you're allowed to do. Right. <laughs> like it's the, you are the allowed is... to, you know, stop actually being engaged in that way with him. So that's actually a good point. Yeah. It's to me that, 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 that bit was really a statement about, um, Tijin and her kind of almost super heroic ability to be, you know, to be at the center of this story. Like mm-hmm. she is doing the thing that we all should try to do. And she's successful because she's amazing, you know, and maybe, you know, when we are faced with challenges like this in our lives as readers of this story, we will not quite live up to that example, but we should try. It's like a statement about what the right thing to do is for her the best thing for her to do in this situation like for her own like development as a person and to me i didn't see it so much as a statement about the community taking tijon in like you know he's allowed to go to the funeral almost partly just to see what he's done to like not it's not it's not like entirely a it's not like a boon granted to him it's a it's a it's a responsibility that he has. Yeah. Um, um, and then the the real message of, of that to me, at least was, was, you know, look at Tijin, look at what a really developed moral adult can do in this or should try to do in this situation. Yeah. That This is what growth will be for her. You know, mm-hmm. that's what I think made it. Uh, this is, that was one of the reminders that this is a post-apocalyptic story yeah. uh, mm-hmm. to me. Right. Mm-hmm. Because if it's the post-apocalypse, and you need to rely on people. Um, you can't afford to. You can't afford just to get rid of a resource like Tony. Like <laughs> he can. He has he some okay medical skills. Yeah, yeah. Like he could draw blood without messing someone up. He could, you know, do first aid. Like you can't. You can't just throw away a guy like that, <laughs> even if he's a. Actually, it's not even that he's a terrible person. It's that he's a really average person. Right. Oh, he's that, very yeah, totally, weak. Totally. He's weak. Yeah. He's ultimately. Yeah. 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 But one of the things that I, I enjoyed about the, the presentation of Tony was that like you're looking at all of these things that he does that are that are so harmful to all the all the people around him. But it feels like kind of like the book is looking you in the eyes and being like, let's be real here. If you were in Tony's position, would you do the exact same fucking thing? 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you were you addicted to would, buff, wouldn't you? Yeah. you know, and like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. even you know? just getting addicted to buff in the first place, like if that were yeah. the like only way to feel happy, would you take yeah. it? <laughs> the world yeah. has crumbled around him. You know? Right. 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 And then, you know, I think that's maybe where too this gets to, you know, I mean, this is a book yeah. from the late nineties by like a, you know, like a African, I guess African North American perspective at least. And there's, you know, clear allegories to like the crack a- a- epidemic and like the, the, you know, the post-apocalyptic situation that like came to a lot of North American cities, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, and that's definitely some of the element there. I think of that being like Tony being like, well, look, like this is what happens when there's not really a society. And when, you know, there's yeah. a lot of, you know, I, I don't even know what the correct word for it is, but, you know, like poverty, lack of support structure and like, you know, essentially, I mean, like Rudy is like a warlord, right? Like he is a gang yeah. leader. He is a, you know, like the kind of person who takes advantage of that situation to like aggrandize himself and hurt others, which, you know, happens both in like, you know, inner cities and in, you know, places like Saudi Arabia or America, you know I mean? Like that, that, that happens all over the place in a lot of different perspectives. Yeah. So one thing that, uh, I just thought of, well, uh, you were saying that is the, um, it's interesting to me, like this, uh, another side of this is the sort of male female dynamic and the way that, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the sort of core community of, of good people are almost all women. Right. Um, there's very few men in the among the community of like sort of the the good normal citizens and among the men you know the men are all kind of these um they're either in the gang in rudy's gang or they are um or tony tony's kind of this like in between figure and the uh, one interesting thing about about the structure of that is that it's almost like a mirror image or a negative image of the, the I, I'm sorry I keep talking about the play, but I just keep thinking of it because I keep <laughs> seeing new new ways that it's like related to the book. But like in the play, <laughs> yeah, I love before the th- before this you're like oh, I'm going to talk about the play for two minutes and then I'll be done. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, it's, I'm sorry. No, it's, hell wrong, no, it's, it's actually it's, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is so good. like yeah, so like the in the play, there's a mother and three son and her three sons, and then there's the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, in the in the book Brown Girl, there's um there's three women three generations of women the devil sort of rudy character but then tony is like he almost is like the the negative image of the mother character in the in the oh, play because in the play the mother character is um the only female and she doesn't really do a lot of things she's not like she's important only in as much as she is this sort of foil for the or like a kind of um thing that the the sons kind of like bounce off of on their way out um except for tijan tijan who who like loves her and actually cares about her more than the other two um so she's like this sort of outside the plot character who um represents just you know she's very simple all she is is like she's a sort of idealized woman who has suffered because she's suffered and her whole lot in life is to have suffered um and in the in brown girl tony you know he he's he's sort of similarly like almost like this outsider to the main dynamic of the story and he's like the one guy or whatever but his role is reversed he's not this sort of like um paragon of like positive image of a suffering mother 
Um, he's this sort of, you know, horrible, like, um, warning about what can befall and like an average normal man mm-hmm. who just like isn't good enough to like isn't a good enough person to right. make something of himself yeah. right um, <laughs> makes a couple like, of pretty understandable mistakes and then it's a rough setting so that's right. all it takes to Right. And that is, I think, really one of the elements of it of like, you know, and so much as like the post-apocalyptic setting is kind of a stand in for poverty more generally. Right. With poverty being Mm. not just this idea of like, oh, you're poor and you don't have money, but like, oh, actually, like you live in an entire community that has like less resources than the communities around it. And like that leads to very bad situations Um, like with that kind of perspective of poverty as like a social yeah. situation not like a lack yeah. of money um that's interesting that he he doesn't <clears throat> martyr himself you know what i mean like he does have a choice like he could have chosen to martyr himself for his like for his woman and child basically but instead he's just he just doesn't and commits murder right well and i think i think that's where the you know like in like in situations that are really bad, I think this is Mendes, your point a little bit of like, you know, in situations that are really bad, like being weak willed means getting like taken over by strong willed evil people as opposed to like, you know, just sort of like generally being average in society. Um, like mm-hmm. when in a world of warlords, being weak willed is being the pawn of a warlord. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas, you know, um, in the world of capitalism, being weak willed is like going to your job, but like not murdering people directly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like we can you know, argue about the morality of going to your job and everything, but like it's different, I think. <laughs> yeah. And so this is and this, this is a portrayal that I would I think I would worry more about um, if um, like if if this character were to show up and he were the only poor black dude in many in many Mm -hmm. novels Mm -hmm. and it were exactly this portrayal i'd be like really this guy Um, right but again like this is we're seeing a really good example i think of the rogue one principle um (laughs) which have i mentioned that before no No. okay so rogue one um donnie yen plays this mystical ancient blind asian martial artist who's always spouting mystical sayings. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm way less mad about that than I normally would be because standing literally right next to him is Jiang Wen playing a Chinese guy who's completely different from that. Right. Um, Right. So, so all right, like that's all it takes. Like all you need to do is like to put two people in there for that, for me to be like, Oh, well this is pretty good for speculative fiction. Right. Um, Well, it's worth, I think there's, you know, Oh, like how many white characters are there even in this? No, I guess the the like yeah, uh, some of the doctors and the stuff political who, like yeah, the cons- guy, political yeah. folks who like exist in kind of the frame story almost. Like right. that was actually really wild. Like yeah. you'd pop back to that frame story and be like, oh yeah, that's right. Like not the whole world has fallen, just here. Like the rest yeah. of the world is fine and doing even better than we are now and like mm-hmm. doing so on the back of the parts that have fallen which again yeah, like yeah. felt very you know on the nose yeah what about the part where they go to the part of toronto that's like the playground for white people who want to come and experience like uh <laughs> t- t- tough urban life that was that was yeah. very on the nose yeah very yeah. much so especially living in new york like we do that's like okay yeah <laughs> welcome to crown yeah. heights or <laughs> i mean so where i lived and everything so <laughs> yeah. what did you guys what did you guys think of um, 
the the ending of the frame story when the heart you know by virtue of having this new heart that comes from um uh grojin you know the Jean. Yeah. The, how, actually, how are we pronouncing that Jean or G? I was pronouncing it Jean because it's still French, right? I think it, it's Jean, like like Jean d'Arc. Right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Isn't it Jean? No, well, in English think, it would be, but it's French. I think in, in French it's yeah, it's Jean. Yeah, in French it's still Jean. Well, I yeah, I guess that, that makes yeah. sense, but I yeah, just my head it was Jean the whole time. Anyway. Right. Yeah. Oh, I actually it's, want to talk about the language at some point because that was one of my favorite parts of the book, being the linguistics. But, but yes, keep, keep going. Sorry, <laughs> I'll okay. sidetrack us for hours. The, yeah, you were talking about the uh, the heart and the, yeah, so the, the literal the, change the, of heart. The, um, right, she has a literal change of heart, which I think I think there's it's easy to see that as so, sort of like um, too cute, I guess, or like too pat of an ending. It's like, oh, okay, that's all they need. But on the other hand, I think it sort of it, 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 it at least for me i think it, it fit the magical milieu yes it exactly. fit it fit it made sense given like how this world seems to work um even though it was obviously a very happy ending it's not like she did remake toronto and rescue the urban core of toronto she just sort of wanted to for the first time do you know what right, i mean right yeah i felt very much like that was like both kind of cute but also worked given the like like it perfectly fit thematically and everything else that happened in the novel and it didn't feel like kind of out of left field or anything like that and in particular one of the things that i really liked was the focus on like no we're not going to bring big businesses in to try to we're not going to give big businesses more money to try to develop the spot we're going <laughs> yeah. to like go uh. there and like look at the people who are intelligent and successful and have businesses themselves already like we're going to like go in and like help the people who are already there develop themselves and like that felt, you know, just at least like a much better perspective on economic development. And I'm glad that's the like it chose to like have that mm -hmm. explicitly in there. Did you guys think that it worked as, a, as an ending? Like, how do you feel about How do we feel about the ending? Um, I think that like I, I get it that it was, you know, it was very pat, which I think makes sense for like something that that's kind of kind of based on folk tales but i think one of the i think one of the points that that was making and one of the importances of the fact that it's very pat and it seems very um like a little bit magical and unrealistic is that looking at politicians in the real world like that that ending is framed in direct contrast to how politicians actually act and you cannot yeah. read that Without thinking, mm -hmm. this is really unrealistic. A politician would never do that. <laughs> oh my god, a politician yeah. would never do that. Yeah, it all yeah. down. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The the effect on the reader um, is like it kind of like if you're the kind of person who's reading this and who's complacent about this kind of thing, like if nothing else in this book like shocks you, you know, shocks mm -hmm. you out of your like seat, then maybe that will. Um, right and um yeah and there's this there's also this very like th this contrast between how the politician reacts and how all the people around her react versus what all the people on the ground are thinking where like she has this big idea which seems like such a big new deal to her and everyone else is like 
oh my god that's how revolutionary how could you say something so controversial and yet so brave um, and why redevelop toronto that's why? been tried <laughs> yeah i mean and like everyone who's actually living in the neighborhood they're talking about it is like yeah no kidding that's gonna work yeah right 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 yeah it's like <laughs> no we kidding, already have a, a community idea. and businesses and like it. stuff yeah. here <laughs> Yeah. No, exactly. And that's what I really liked about it was was that element. And it's it's also worth noting that it's it's not actually how the book ends. The book ends with like the community. Like it's the it's mm-hmm. it's the frame story in that it's kind of how it mm-hmm. begins and almost how it ends, but then the book does go back to the community mm-hmm. one last time for yeah, the like the the funeral and you know the way the book ends is uh Tijon <laughs> deciding to name her baby. And not giving it a name. We don't know what the name is, but it's deciding to name the baby finally. And, you know, it's I think it's this element of like her taking responsibility for herself Mm -hmm. as like motherhood, for herself as a like center of this community, for herself as like a person within a broader context instead of just herself where, you know, I mean, she starts off the book relatively selfish and that's not necessarily like a thing that she shouldn't be. It works in a lot of ways. Right. Um, But like a lot of the book is about her learning to be a part of a community. Yeah, I mean, to me, like the book is almost just like her growing up, right? It's a story mm-hmm. of of a young woman growing into a an adult. I mean, she 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 basically progressively deals with the traumas that she has been uh, bequeathed by her previous, like by her ancestors, and she deals with her relationships with those ancestors, and she deals with her community, and she deals with you know having her having her own relationships that she creates, and she deals with her child. And then she gradually sort of like in getting better at dealing with all of these things becomes a, an adult. She becomes a, a person who's able then to help others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm, I'm liking the, th- like I liked this book, but I'm liking the themes of it more and more, the more we talk about it. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a like, cause it's a very short book, but it's a very yeah. deep book. I mean, again, I read it essentially totally. in like three, a three hour long sessions. <laughs> so like, I read it like a third at a time. <laughs> um, and you I know, think that's it's not just, a thing yeah. I could even do with a lot of the books that we read. So yeah. it's, it's cool. It was very neat. I love the point that that reviewer at strange horizons make, like this is a book with staying power. This feels just yeah. as relevant now. Um, as it like, I mean, I, I didn't read it when it came out, but it's like, it came out a while ago already, you know, it's been almost a generation, you know, which yep. is weird, but it's, it feels like it could have been written now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it was midway, I think through last, uh, midway through our last recording session when I realized that this was written 20 years ago rather than yeah. like a couple years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's only a sad commentary on the state of our society. It's also just like the book is good. Like, yeah, <laughs> right, right. I mean, it is both, but <laughs> the yeah. book also and, is good and works. Yeah. yeah. And I think that like the, these kinds of the, the African religious themes that are present in this book have taken so long to get into like main pop culture consciousness that I assume that anything that's this on point about all of those like has to have been pretty recently because like. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. well, you know, and this is the point that Tobias Bakel made when he was on the podcast and talking about Caribbean science fiction that like this is a lot of the way in a lot of ways, the book that like allowed that to even exist, like 
this book, its existence, it's like, you know, kind of like the way that she melds science fiction and this African Caribbean religion is something that like created a large number of other works and created like a space in that community for these kinds of works to exist, which is really neat. It is. That is cool. And it makes me think, you know, so many of the other um, pieces of literature that come from a Caribbean background that I'm familiar with do not involve the Afro-Caribbean religion. They are either Christian or either interested in more in Christianity or interested more in um, kind of, you know, uh, like, you know, 20th century scientific view of the world. Um, like I'm thinking everything from everything from Juno Diaz to the Yas guy that we mentioned to mm-hmm. um, well, we did mention to P. Jelly Karen Clark Ward. and his his yeah, is Ke- very much even, like religious. Sure, sure, but but I mean I think there are some, but I think a lot of the ones I think of like the Karen Lords of the world, for example. I love Karen Lord. I think her work is really good. Um, or like uh, Derek Walcott himself, you know, the sort mm-hmm. of you know, arguably the most famous, you know, or one of the, certainly one of the most famous Caribbean authors. Um, it's, it's really interesting how little I've, I've seen Afro-Caribbean religion, even in Caribbean literature, right. which how may be a lot, it may just be my bias, but, but, but still. Well, that might also go to the, I mean, this is the theme in the, in the book and that we talked a lot about in the last podcast of the ways in which like Afro-Caribbean religion is often one that needs to be like kept secret. And even the people who like mm-hmm. practice mm-hmm. it today in a place where it's great, can point. be more open about it, still have this feeling and need of keeping it kind of like secret that, it, you know, it's a religion that like purposefully exists in the shadows a little bit, I, you know, the shadows and the idea of like, you know, outside of like main view. Yeah, good point. And um, definitely also just the fact that obviously, you know, I grew up white in an urban <laughs> right. center in America. And so like of course I didn't see like it's there's a lot of things that uh are set up to make it difficult for me to see that not just by the community but by my community <laughs> not right. wanting me to see it. Right. You know, or by or by me being taught to 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 kind of to see that sort of thing as associated with like Oh, like the way that Christianity or like the sort of some strains of Christianity kind of co-opt things like that and just place them in the category. They they devilize them. The, the, the yep. Christian demonology has a, you know, a like an 800 year history of taking um, taking non-Christian religious practices and like working them into this corpus of things that are evil and right. like cat- categorizing them and classifying them as di- different types of evil. Right. And at like the same Milton, time, Milton listing all of the, uh, the catalog of the Egyptian gods in, in uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. paradise lost at the city of Dis. Yeah. Or the, the way that, um, witchcraft trials, um, produced, like I've been reading, uh, there's a couple of books by, um, I mean, um, so that I, I just, yeah. I really anyway. quickly, like that all, that all said, I mean, like, it's also interesting to me that like of the three of us, like, you know, in sure, like my town was all white, but like in growing up in a really rural, I mean, not post-apocalypse so much as like, like civilization hadn't come yet. I grew up myself in poverty and like in this kind of like, you know, I mean, like my church was this small group of people in a swamp, like literally the church was in a swamp, Um, you know, and it's like, in some ways, like, 
I, you know, it's like, oh, well, I've actually like gone through rich, scary rituals where people get like possessed and like speak with like someone else's voice, you know, and it's like, it is this a little bit of an interesting thing of like, for all that Christianity is, you know, obviously like, you know, yes, does all of that. Also, there are elements of Christianity that, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to say that they're directly related in any sort of lineage way so much as there's this kind of convergent evolution, I think, and this, this sort of sense of like, you know, sure, you can like go and like do a ritual and like get possessed by like whatever like God head and like speak with their voice. Um, and it's scary and it's meant to be. I know it's interesting to me to always to look at like the similarities of this stuff here and, you know, like recognize that there are, you know, like other structural issues, but that there is this element of. Yeah. And like growing up in these kind of like, in a, what in a lot of ways is a similar position. And then you have like a similar kind of religion, one that like has secret elements and has, you know, this like, I mean, I mean, the other thing with it is like, okay, like, yeah, I grew up in a Christian dominated society, but even so, like one of the like really interesting mythological elements of that kind of Christianity is the sense of like persecution, like and if it's not being persecuted, like in Homer necessarily, and often it was, you know, it's the sense of like, like I was homeschooled because my parents didn't want me to get a secular education because that would like beat the God out of me, essentially. Um, and also there's a, the, often we would get these like missionaries to come in to talk about their missionary work and how like how persecuted they were as missionaries and like China. <laughs> or Africa or wherever it was that they were at. And it, it's, it's this really interesting view of like, you know, like there's also this feeling of like needing to be in the shadows and also, you know, and so I'm not trying to say that like it's the same in any way so much as like, it, I don't know, it, it, there is this interesting like parallel to them and I'm not quite sure where that comes from. I just think it's, it's interesting that you can, that, that there are, I, I, I think spotting this, this parallel is interesting because it just highlights the way in which people are people and the way in which a lot of experiences can, we can identify with experiences, even if they seem on the face, like they might be very d distant. Right. It turns out and in, in, in some cases, at least they are not as distant as we might've thought. Right. I guess mm -hmm. that's part of what I'm trying to say here is that this book didn't feel abstract to me. And like, when, you know, when I say that it takes the religion seriously, it feels like, you know, okay, it's obviously not my religion. It's not my religion now. It's not, it's never been my religion, but there were still ways in which it felt like, oh yeah, it's taking that kind of religion seriously, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and not just treating it as these like yokels in the woods doing their thing. Um, yeah. you know, and there's, there was back in college, I remember reading a lot of scholarly work about the, the continuity of certain like religious concepts and practices between, uh, between African religion and African American religion, um, which ended up and elements of African American religion, which ended up becoming like more mm -hmm. mainstream and ended up being adopted, uh, by white Christians as well. Totally. Um, totally. Yeah. Um, like if you look at, I know you weren't Pentecostal, but if you look at the history of Pentecostalism, uh, which is now, um, really, really widespread in, in the care, in the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, if you look at the history of Pentecostalism and, uh, the importance of like, uh, I guess like, uh, possession adjacent or possession equivalent yeah. <laughs> practices, yep. Um, yeah, what's the word for like eschiatic or whatever, like the, the, like being possessed by the spirit of God type stuff. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. So, so there's, there's continuity there. Um, yep. 
there are some some scholars like even going back to like Melville Herskovitz have have drawn parallels between um uh African uh African water rituals and the importance of uh of baptism and mm-hmm. huh. interesting mm-hmm. and uh-huh. of like uh water imagery in um in the black American South's uh, Christianity. And then, you know, of course there's the ring shout. Um, uh, What's that? Oh, the ring shout is a, it's a, it's a religious practice that, um, and there are, there are documented uh, images of ring shouts going back to like the era of slavery um, where as a, as a Christian practice, as an explicitly Christian practice. And this was even in the United States where African traditions were exterminated much more, uh, diligently than in other places throughout the new world. Um, there were, um, there were, uh, ri- there were Christian rituals, which involved, uh, a, a number of people, uh, walking in a circle um, in a ritualistic manner and engaging mm. in, you know, various kinds of prayer and ecstatic, uh, behavior mm. and so forth. And this was, it's one of the, um, it's one of the, I think most studied continuities between, uh, African religion and African American Christianity. That's um, so interesting. That's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. It was one of the, it, like, I think one of the first, uh, things I remember, the first concepts I remember learning about in my, my first African American religion class in college. Right. Oh, wow. That is well, really so, so it sounds like I'm not, I, I mean, it's nice to hear that I'm not totally off base and being like, oh, there seems to be some kind of like similarity. It's really interesting. I mean, I, I guess this is a really big theme, but like there's so many, like the more you guys are talking about it, the more I'm thinking of other ways that there are these similarities. Like I'm thinking about, um, uh, there's an, uh, a, uh, uh, there's a number of uh, Nigerian authors who write in English, um, mm-hmm. who, um, who I've read talking about the, you know, Christianity in Nigeria, especially, um, in Southern Nigeria. Well, obviously that's where most of Nigerian Christians live, but you know, the, there's, um, a lot of success gospel churches apparently mm-hmm. in Southern Nigeria. It's an incredibly popular motif or like set of ideas that a lot of, um, religious Christians in Nigeria are play with and, and like create their own versions of. Right. And I actually don't know anything about, I don't know the origin of success gospel stuff in America. It's usually called prosperity gospel, not success. Prosperity gospel. gospel. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. So at least yeah. in America, that's what I'm familiar with. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I don't know the, anything about the origin of prosperity gospel, um, style, uh, Christianity, but, um, but that seems like definitely another, you know, that's another commonality. It's much more modern. It's, it's newer, I think, mm-hmm. but it's, it's like different versions of it are all over the place and they're kind of crossing the Atlantic back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Prosperity yeah. gospel stuff. It just, so our listeners know if they don't, that's like, you know, a lot of mega churches and these sort of, again, like often non-denominational evangelical churches that have this big focus on like, if you pray good enough, if you believe hard enough, if you're a good enough Christian, you'll get rich is this is the really like, you know, kind of like stripped down version of the of the message this idea that like you know it's kind of like where evangelical christianity and capitalism intersect with this idea of like you know like the thing you should pray for is like you know strength to work hard and get money (laughs) 
yeah. <laughs> it's wild stuff. Um, you know, and it's a lot of the kind of like, I, I think the origin as far as I'm aware is stuff like Billy Graham and his ministry, um, as well as like Joel Osteen, I believe is his name is another very like popular modern mm-hmm. prosperity gospel preacher. So it's kind of like, it's a lot of like mega church plus capitalism. It's like where the mega churches get turned into like beyond just being local and kind of like more broad mm-hmm. regional things. That's often where that begins. Cool. Sorry, I probably could talk way too much about this stuff <laughs> in like evangelical Christianity because, you know, it's like I left the church relatively young. I was probably like 13 or whatever when I did. I was still in middle school, essentially, but or high school. And but it was fascinating has always been fascinating to me so it's like i have kind of you know as an adult done what i can to study it kind of like almost from an anthropological point of view because it's fascinating and it's like you know growing up it was just what i knew and it was just like oh we'd go to different churches and they'd say different things and now it's like well why did that church say that thing like where did this thing come from so this is part of why like you know for me even though like you know like the similarities here are so striking because I'm really interested in that kind of question of like, what's the intellectual mm-hmm. lineage? What's the ritual lineage of this stuff? Yeah. yeah. And it's also really relatable in the book because uh, so much of it is about uh, a young person who, mm-hmm. I mean, a young person trying to relate to her own ancestral traditions and not necessarily knowing anything about them. And maybe, you know, her grandmother wants her to know more about it, but she's like kind of wigged out by it. That's very relatable, I think, to anyone who's ever been a young person, i.e. all of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, like this, the, the fact that we can have these conversations where it gets, you know, we start from this topic and it gets all the way into like completely white evangelical <laughs> churches. Like that's, it's important to like track the track, the provenance of those ideas and be able to trace them back to like, um, where they have influences from cultures that like their ultimate, like their ultimate recipients don't think about or yeah. think about negatively. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really one of the interesting things to me is like, you know, if I like <laughs> if my mom heard this podcast, she would be like freaked the fuck out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Just like the idea of reading this book in the first place. And then to me, it's like, oh, it's you know, it's similar. It's actually, you know, it's not all the same thing, but it definitely like has elements. Huh. Yeah. So one thing I too, just to track a little bit, I just wanted to say really quickly, because I didn't say this in like my kind of mini review of the book, but um one thing that I thought the book was really successful at was um language. Like the use of code switching, the use of like different kinds of English and like, you know, very distinct like, you know, I essentially, I, I guess it's Patois. I don't know how to re- explicitly how to speak about like uh, Caribbean African English. Um, but like the way that the different characters could code switch, the way that Nayla Hopkinson herself could just like write in both like kind of like pretty standard North American English as well as Caribbean English. I mean, it's a thing that I often love in science fiction books when they kind of like create their own language a little bit. Like when an author is able to do that well, I'm always, I'm always really happy. And so to have an author do it well, but not have to create the language to be able to like use a language that exists as its own kind of like language and use that, well in a book i'm just i love that i thought it was super great and i just wanted to like throw that out there that that was a lot of fun yeah. to read yeah so a lot of the a lot of the language here it like it, it goes back and forth and like the religious influences they come from different places in the caribbean mm-hmm. um but i'd say that one of the most so one of the biggest influences throughout the book and on on all of these things and this is a actually a part of the caribbean i know a little bit less about is jamaica um 
and a lot of the a lot of the language here um, comes from uh, Jamaican patois or Creole, mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, the the religious. Whenever you see the word obia, um, that's it's a word with African origins, but it's nowadays associated mostly with Jamaica. So it is the it is the Afro Atlantic religion uh-huh. from Jamaica. Okay. Um, and I, I expect that there is another um, better accepted name for that. The way that like Lukumi is a, a is usually a better thing to say than Santeria. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so so Obia is uh, is an idea or a, a religion that's mostly associated with Jamaica, and a lot of the language here is uh, definitely Jamaican in origin. Um, a lot of the names, right, and all the like the francophone stuff. That stuff is is Haitian, yeah. um, but yeah, so Jamaican um it's it's interesting because like it's it's often mutually intelligible with English, but it it is a it is different enough that I would I'm confident in saying that Jamaican patois is a is a different language. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's not a, I mean like this is something that annoys me a lot as someone who like studied linguistics in college. Uh-huh. Um like when people are like, "Oh, it's an accent." Or it's a, you know, it's like, "No, it's not an accent. It is no, like a language that different. has an accent. The syntax is different. You don't know the it nouns too." nouns have different cases. Yeah. yeah right. You like can't just cuz you can understand it doesn't mean you can speak it. Is also a really important like thing mm-hmm. to a lot of this. Like the the languages are mutually intelligible in a lot of cases, especially written because that kind of like helps smooth out mm-hmm. some of the accent but that doesn't mean that you can speak it uh, right yeah. and it's something that i could tell she did a good job of was actually like writing in a language instead of like a you know folksy english <laughs> right <laughs> Which, you yeah know. that's that's actually one of the things that's incredibly annoying if you ever see that i mean certainly some books attempt yeah. it and fail spectacularly <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah but she you know nail hopkins obviously doesn't have that problem yeah. Right. And I, one of the things that I thought was was most interesting was the code switch, uh, not just in the in the dialogue, but also in the like the narrative text. Yeah. The book itself. Oh, code. Yeah. Like the yeah, expository yeah, totally, text totally. is different when it's just like when it's like rich, fancy politicians. Yep. Like all absolutely. of a sudden it sounds like people on the news. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really I, cool. I, I really like that, that. I also like that interesting like. T. Jean doesn't code switch, but her grandmother does, right? Like her, like T. Jean speaks essentially in the patois for the most part, whereas her grandmother does with her. And then when other people come in, she all of a sudden speaks this like fairly fancy English herself. And it's like, oh, this good reminder that like, you know, I think some of that is this reminder of like, you know, T. Jean has essentially grown up in a Toronto that has fallen, whereas her grandmother had to know both languages. But also that like her grandmother's a smart fucking lady. You know, yeah. like she's mm-hmm. not some yokel. She knows her shit and she like can do a lot and is very skilled. Yeah. I was I, I, deeply yeah, impressed sorry. by the wide diversity of like all of the stuff her grandmother was really good at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> her grandmother is an awesome character. I think one of the most successful things in the book was the portrayal of um, the grandmother, honestly, because... It's actually, you know, you start out and she's just sort of seems like she may not even end up being a major character because she's kind of this like, you know, she seems like in the very beginning of the book, I remember thinking like, oh, I wonder if she's even going to show up that much. Um, It's Mm going to be mostly uh, Tijon or whatever. But of course, she ends up being, you know, central and she you end up finding more and more about her past as you go on. And I, I found myself feeling like this is a really great portrayal of what 
a really smart and capable and successful person, uh, what can happen? What 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 sort of mistakes a really smart, successful, and capable person can make in terms of their relationships and um, allowing themselves to be affected by their relationships? You know, obviously, uh, uh, Grosjean and Rudy, that relationship and the result of that relationship is kind of like. The, the like the second or third order consequences of that relationship are kind of what's playing out in the story and the way that we see Grosjean as somebody who's simultaneously a paragon of like so many different facets of human existence and also this like really flawed person who kind of seriously you know allowed herself to be allowed herself to be you know caught up with this terrible terrible person and uh, and treated awfully by by Rudy is mm-hmm. is you know that's that's very real, realistic it's very it's very relatable it's something that i think you know so often like if you if you see somebody portrayed as a victim of that kind of domestic abuse there you you are only given their victim side you're only given like the the kind of one victim view of that of that person and that's not realistic at all obviously people are complicated and even people who have been um you know the 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 object of terrible abuse are a lot more than an object of terrible abuse yeah um yeah and like i think that just looking back at my own life and times when i have gotten into like relationships with similar dynamics there's this um like i grew up in i grew up in like pretty economically privileged surroundings and a lot of the there were a lot of bad things in life that I knew about, but which everyone just kind of believed couldn't happen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, there are these things that like you're, you're vulnerable to and, and stuff can be bad and you, you don't notice it or you don't do anything about it because like, that's the thing that happens to poor people or people of color or people in a different country or something like that. Um, and I guess the, the most obvious example is uh, stuff having to do with mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, um, like there have been like, uh, just looking at like the, the really fancy private school where I, where I grew up. Um, there have been a bunch of like really high profile cases where um, someone has uh, someone who seems pretty clearly mentally ill has committed a bunch of crimes. Um, I'm not going to go into them cause they've, been pretty high profile and gruesome um but uh maybe not i don't know by the standards that we're talking about today but um yeah people who have just like kind of let stuff happen to them or who have gotten who have let a problem get more developed than they otherwise let a problem that i feel like it would be normal to react to at a much earlier point um there's been this idea that like this can't happen to me and like this corresponding stigma, if this is happening to me, then I must not be like the rich, successful person I was raised to be. Mm. Um, uh, and so, yeah, like looking at like, Oh my God, there's this really impressive person and she's so smart and has all of these different skills. Like, um, Oh, how, how could she possibly, how could she possibly allow herself to fall into this relationship with this terrible person? Well, no, like looking back at some of the old, some of the terrible relationship decisions, like I've made, like given some of the privilege that I had growing up, it's like, eh, okay. Yeah. That's, <laughs> uh, it's not that weird, is it? And no, totally. Yeah. 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 Um, 
so that that like that definitely resonated uh pretty deeply mm. with me um uh yeah. but yeah like uh, another thing that i was really impressed by um because like so i guess coming from like a similar place to usually when you see a character like tony there's like a tragic sacrifice um usually when you see a character like grosjean um like in in a lot of in a lot of fiction um this character would be uh like a magical negro archetype yeah who would be extremely ancillary to the story and would be there to like you know do mystical stuff and say wise sayings and support another character's narrative but not but not um not be be like a character themselves yeah exactly Mm -hmm. um and yeah another thing that um and this goes back to the thing that we were talking about earlier with like the thing that that uh Tijan has that her mother and grandmother didn't is her mother and grandmother like the story even after her grandmother dies even then the story doesn't stop being about her grandmother also and yep. the only like as we find out more even like once she is deceased the story she becomes more relevant to the story like rather than less if anything as we find out like her history with rudy um uh and like we and then like we see the like there's the thing with the heart um like and and i think that this is like i've even seen this in works where um where this character would be advising another black character um i I guess like uh i don't know mama Odie from the princess and the frog comes comes to mind Mm -hmm. um and so the fact that um the fact that she's she clearly has her own narrative and is like a complete person with strengths and weaknesses and all that stuff like that was um you know it seems like well of course this can happen in a book that's you know by a black person about black people um but i think that there are a lot of lessons in how she's portrayed that would be applicable to the inclusion of of a similar character in a book that doesn't have a lot of black people for one reason or another I totally agree. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more because it's it's not it's not even like, you know, there's other tropes that are that are overused beyond the 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 racist magical Negro trope that like the the wise sage, you know, the wise sage, you know, is not typically given much of a personality or history. You know, they're just a font of wisdom. They, They exist to like spout wisdom. And, you know, and and so the idea that like, oh, we're gonna treat this as a character and we're going to take seriously the idea that this person is a, just an older member of this community what what does that mean well they're you know they have they've done things that have shaped the community as it is now mm-hmm. by definition you know and so okay that what does that mean well what does that look like what how does that feel to be a younger member looking up at that you know how how what is the whole range of emotions over the course of an upbringing that one would feel reacting against this older wiser person Uh i think that's what we're given here and it's like incredibly it's incredibly effective and and like i i totally agree with you i I wish you know you you see a lot of stories where whether they involve race or not whether they involve uh black people or not you see a lot of stories that feature this you know this old trope of the wise person and that don't do anything with it you know Mm -hmm. right it is worth noting like you know what one of the ways that it works it's like oh it's like a younger person interacting with an older wiser person but 
an older, wiser person who is wrong about things and makes her own mistakes. I mean, like gets herself killed because she makes her own mistakes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that was something I actually struggled with a little bit. It was like, like I said earlier, like during her death, there was a feeling of like it didn't emotionally resonate a whole lot with me. And like there was also this I kept going back and forth between like, well, okay, on the one hand, she actually knew nothing about Tony's overall plan. So why wouldn't she be willing to like turn her back to him given that he has been helpful recently and then also being like well why did he come back like i would be like if i were her given how suspicious i'd been of him up till now like why is this the point where i'm not suspicious and it's like oh she was really tired it had been a long big day and she had other shit in her mind is a lot of the yeah and she and she didn't think he would kill her i mean he might want to like steal something but like (laughs) right you know right yeah. And so that that's, you know, this kind of interesting thing of like, she's, you know, not perfect in that in and she mm-hmm. also has a history with other people. Like she's right. not just there to say things. She hasn't been living in the woods for the last 80 years to like come out and say something. Why it's like, no, she's like more of a member of the community than like Tishon is in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, very cool. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, you guys both about we've talked about it a little bit, but like the whole inner city apocalypse thing, the whole um, post-apocalyptic, you know, side of the story. Um, we've, this is one of the ways where this book relates um, to other stuff that we've read in a lot of different ways. Like Romy Futch, for example, is another vision of this kind of, um, yep. you know, sort of realistic near future. Um, Shitty future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and, and like, I'm, what do you guys think? How do you how do you feel about this? You know, in a, in a way, this is one of the most science fictional parts of the book, so it's kind of worth talking mm-hmm. about a little. Like, mm-hmm. how do you feel about this vision of the breakdown of society versus versus some of the other stuff that we've read, or just in general? So the uh, the whole, the history of Toronto and the the events that lead to inner like the hub of Toronto um, being as like underdeveloped and dangerous as it is. Um, so a lot of that stuff gets gets explained um, gets explained very early prologue. on in the book, yeah, yeah in the prologue, um, and it's so it's a pattern that that I think happens a lot in real life where there's like so there's an action by activists right, which in this case was like there were these Native American activists um, who were were pushing for certain things to happen in Toronto, um, and. Um, and then people who are in power, um, or people who have a lot of privilege, economic privilege, um, who tend to be white, um, they, they have some reaction to it, right. Which is, which is itself like a, like a choice made out of like cowardice and desperation and greed because they want to, they want to keep their lifestyles. Right. So Mm -hmm. what happens it's, we get white flight, um, and it's one of these situations which in real life is often um, is often touted as proof that the activists failed, that they did something wrong. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Like they were they were pushing hard for something. And then, oh, look how look how these other people reacted. And it's framed as like, oh, look what you made them do. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Pe- yeah. People say this all the time when it comes to like re- when when protests happen, like when, yeah. it, oh, you know, these protesters blocked traffic to, to, to try to make a point about systemic racism. Um, look, look at how mad I am that, that they blocked my my commute home. Right. See, they just made me mad. Like right. they failed. <laughs> yeah. Why can't we just have a civil discourse? But yeah. So, so <laughs> it drives that, me nuts. Yeah. So that that pattern um, 
as like the as the origin of the like of this little like uh uh this apocalypse that that felt very real and resonant mm-hmm. and like and painful right like thinking mm-hmm. about all of the discussions that i've had recently where where something like this has happened and it's um and it's resulted in like someone shutting down the discussion um mm-hmm. it's like that just got my blood boiling like right away and that that was that i thought was really resonant like the the apocalypse isn't it's not like oh there was like the this impersonal force it's like you can uh nilo hawkinson is like pointing directly to the people whose fault it is um Mm -hmm. and also to the people who those people are blaming for it Mm -hmm. um so that like that hit me really really hard and that got me engaged like right away as far as the premise went interesting so I, I will, I feel like I keep bringing up the, like the negative opinion and it's not so much that I dislike it so much as I saw that. And also this other thing, which was this feeling of like, at the same time, like the reason that Toronto falls is because like, there's actually explicit mention of like, oh, the police left. And so we weren't safe anymore, which felt like, like that was the one thing that didn't really resonate for me about like why the city falls, given that like, I mean, I've, I've lived in like poor inner city neighborhoods before and often it seems to be more the case that like, oh, the police are there and thus we're not safe, not the police are left and thus we're not, right? Like the police That's are true, themselves yeah. like this kind of like agent of like oppression and of keeping people down and of, you know, specifically like making it harder for people to move around in these spaces. Um, and so like it, you know, and it's like, okay, like I don't expect the book to do everything perfectly, but it was like, it was kind of interesting that it didn't, that it engaged with the police as like a good, as opposed to like one of the systematic elements that are like making this area worse and more difficult. Um, and then that, you is, know, that, that is actually a really interesting point, Adrian, because that, that makes me remember the extent to which, I think a lot of a lot of left discourse about crime was really different in the 90s. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say, I think this is that. an element like this is an element of the novel that I think if it were written today would be different. And it was like the one thing that actually really singled it out. I mean, that plus like buff literally being like crack. Like, I mean, there's actually crack in buff. Like that was the other thing that really was like, oh, yeah, that's right. This is, you know, a novel of a specific time and place um one of that one of those times and places is like this way it treats drugs what drug it's talking about the way those drug works and the other is the like the relationship with the police and the police as like we need them to fix up and like without them like things will get even worse um which i don't think is the way that you know like especially left activists like think about the police today um so that was that was this kind of just interesting thing to me that i recognized right away it didn't detract from my enjoyment of the novel at all and i think overall i really liked the setting i i'm a really big fan i mean i've mentioned soft apocalypse by will mcintosh a couple of times like i really and obviously we read romy futch i really like these novels that can treat the apocalypse as not like a thing that happens to everyone and everyone dies but rather like a thing like a state of being that can happen in different places and to different people and that like is caused right like i mean like listen like Africa has gone through an apocalypse like 
that's what colonialism was like we destroyed their societies and civilizations like you know like what what is like the the history of american colonialism but like these great cities and great civilizations like falling at the hands of outsiders and like it's to to us it's conquering and to them it's apocalypse and the same thing you know can be you know we talk about inner cities or like urban i'm putting air quotes on this stuff right and it's like a lot of that is like, you know, to us, it's like, oh, it's these places that are like poor, have blight or whatever. But like, you know, it's also this <laughs> like, like vision Flint, Michigan. Of, right. It's like yeah. also a thing that has happened and like, you know, has has like people have made choices and like in particular people in power have made choices about what they value. Yeah. And, you know, like that is a thing being done to people. And I thought that that was something that, you know, particularly the frame story was really necessary to point out that like, yeah, Rudy is bad. Like there are bad people making bad decisions and who are themselves just evil, but also like letting evil get that power is a thing that can happen in certain circumstances and not in other circumstances that there's like a wider context to what's going on here than just like Rudy's a bad person with magic. And so of course he wins. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really, that's a really good point. I think the frame story is this is very important to this novel. Like it's Mm -hmm. sort of, you, you could imagine this novel without it. Like it wouldn't change most of the book in some sense. Like it's not like part of the I mean, there's like a thousand words of frame story total throughout the book. But it it serves, right. But it serves a really, really important function of making the book about a lot more than just a sort of fable of a girl growing up and fighting evil. Uh, it makes the book about societies everywhere and the way that those societies can inculcate this type of fantastic evil. Um, and like the people who are at fault, it's what's really interesting is because it doesn't it doesn't really the book doesn't really give us the book doesn't really make us like the, we are meant, I think, to think that the premiere uh, of Ontario or whatever is, I think that's, is that her position? Premier of Ontario, whatever. Anyway, yeah, the, what, the, what, woman, the governor essentially. <laughs> yeah. 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 We, we are meant to think that, that she is wrong and immoral in the beginning of the book, but it's also kind of not clear that we're meant to think she's as bad as Rudy, even though arguably she's doing more to hurt more people by her inaction I can't, there's an interesting tension there between kind of like how we are meant to think about her and what, or at least what her position would be capable of doing to make things better, you know, as we are kind of hinted, as is hinted in the end of the book. I mean, there's this interesting tension between like the structural and like the human factors that create this post-apocalypse in the book. Well, the, mm. it, it definitely reminded me of how, um, you know, there are like reading her position early on in the book and reading like, remember there were the, uh, so the premiere, it's the premiere. Yeah. Yeah. So she's, uh, so she's, uh, off her feet and there's other people talking about, uh, her and her decisions and what she wants to do, um, about the operation and they're describing her position. Um, and they're describing why she's sticking so hard to this, like, no, I don't want a pig heart thing. Right. And I, and I remember reading that and being like, well, damn, that's that's pretty compelling. Like I can I can see being being sold on that if I didn't have the perspective of this book. And if I were just like hearing the premiere saying that I can mm. I can easily see how like someone could try and con- could convince me of this because I don't have the perspective that uh, the people in Toronto have. And, mm. you know, yeah. it, it kind of reminded me of like um, 
like in the United States, there was the thing about the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and um, people, you know, voicing their support for it and not voicing their support for it or like supporting it until a whole bunch of indigenous people piped up and were like, hey, so this screws all of us over. And we don't know if you'll have realized that because you aren't us, but this is what's going to go on. And then people being like, oh, OK, wait, wait, maybe we shouldn't do this. Um, mm. So it, it really reminded me of like of that feeling like, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership being described to me and thinking, well, this seems like a good idea. And then a whole bunch of people who were actually on the ground that it would have affected uh, more directly, um, like raising their voices uh, despite great adversity to like point out that this was a problem. So that was that I thought was was pretty, pretty resonant. Mm-hmm. And I just I just love it all in general, how this book doesn't um like it doesn't take the blame away from anyone. The, the apocalypse never stops being personal and we never, we never lose sight of like, uh, whose fault this is. Yep. One thing I thought was just kind of funny and clearly like, Oh, this book being like Canadian was like her big political (laughs) idea at the end was like, Oh, we'll just make everyone an organ donor by default, which like everyone's like, Oh wow, that will go over really well with the electorate. Whereas like in America, that would be like, you know, the death knell of an entire political party. (laughs) You know, it's like this idea of like, you're going to take our freedom away from us. (laughs) So I just, I just thought that like, I laughed actually while reading it being like, Oh yeah, this is not how this, (laughs) that would not be the American political, you know, solution to that problem. (laughs) It is funny. One of the, one of the really interesting things about this book, it's really interesting to me how the book is so specific about its political view of the world. Like mm-hmm. it gets down to very, very specific. And it's not always in a, you know, necessarily realistic way. I mean, and and I don't know if that is even, you know, bad in the context of the book, but it like it's interested in very, very specific policies. Um, and it's interested in like the specific people who had those ideas and it doesn't, it doesn't really try to give you like a, a vision of political economy from the ground up. Like this person works with this person works with this person. This is how the bureaucracy, blah, 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 blah. It doesn't really try to do that, but it gives you a sort of sketch of it. Yeah. And the sketch is very specific compared to, you know, like in Romy Futch, we, we're shown the world, you know, from the ground level view. Um, and in a lot of other books, I think, you know, like, I don't know, like a lot of post-apocalypse, like, you know, like Station Eleven or like, uh, you know, uh, The Road or like, there's a lot of, you know, recent post-apocalyptic books that, that, that are also doing the Romy Fudge thing where they show the, the ground level view and they, they don't really get into the details because that's not really important. Let's just look at the consequences. It's some hand wavy thing might, might be mentioned about how like, yeah, environmental degradation or yeah, like the medical establishment was not set up. Essentially it's not interested in politics necessarily a lot of policy. Yeah. 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 Whereas, whereas this book, I think to its great credit is, is like very specifically interested in exactly what it was that was bad that happened, you know? Even if that's not the focus of the narrative, we're still going to bother to to lay it out for you. Right. You know? And not in a like, you know, kind of like info dumpy type way, but like, no, that's actually important yeah. to the narrative. Like it's it helps you understand that, like, this story is part of a larger story. Like these people, even though it's like an apocalypse within this society is still like within that larger society and that society mm-hmm. still has power. It actually reminds me a little bit of the, you know 
we mentioned this in one of the last couple episodes we did about 10 billion days, 100 billion nights for this idea of like apocalypse as a thing that like destroys society versus apocalypse as a thing that happens like within society and the way society like continues through apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And that can happen in terms mm-hmm. of like lore, for instance, in like MK Jemison's fifth season, or in this case where it's like, you know, pockets of apocalypse Mm-hmm. With surrounding, you know, like science fictional, like, you know, utopia practically. <laughs> um, yeah. And how, you know, these different, you know, thinking about apocalypse in these different way are sort of like metaphors or analogies or just sort of like, you know, lenses of viewing kind of like different types of inequality that happen in the real world. Um, you know, I mean, like the the typical like the road style apocalypse is a, in a way the sort of like individualistic like fantasy about like survivalism and you know kind of very like raw raw in a way. Even though like that yeah. book sure is really horrific, but like there's also this kind of like mythos behind it. Whereas like a book like this is like oh like you know it's very horrific too, but it's about the way everyone exists in relationship to each other. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, Go it's ahead. a it's a it's a different. Um, uh, like we talk a lot about preppers in the United States and I've been having a lot of, <laughs> a lot of conversations recently about, about people who prepare for the apocalypse. And uh, a lot of those, like the people that we often associate with um, like with prepper stuff and which um, evidently people selling things also associate with prepper stuff are like, do you know the Bud K catalog? Yes. No, I do. What is okay. that? I will oh, know man. anything you mentioned about this because I'm really into this stuff. <laughs> well, no, can, can, can you guys? So, Bud, me in? Bud K is essentially it's like cheap, shitty knives and survivalist gear, and it's it's often known as the kind of like like it's the stuff that will be like a pocket knife for ten dollars that's like neon green and like you know for zombie protection. Yes. Like ironically, <laughs> unironically, who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's like if you want to go to one uh one like crumply catalog or you know sketchy website on the internet and you want to in one order get um a a a zombie katana <laughs> and a confederate For $15. flag dollars and a confederate oh, flag bedspread and oh, man. like yep. a taser that's a flashlight <laughs> with the Batman logo on it <laughs> And you, you want to get all of these things from the same place. The Bug Gay catalog will hook you up. Um, yep. And like, it's one of those things where like we, we joke about it at my dojo every now and then, like partly because we think the Bud K catalog is funny and partly just to like, in case new people take it really seriously, that's like maybe uh, mm. like there was this one time, like we had a, we had a new student and like, so I told a joke about the Bud K catalog, you know, in the middle of sword practice. And he was like, Oh, the Bud K catalog. I love that thing. I just bought a Warhammer from them. <laughs> oh, and man. very, very oh, shortly man. afterwards, we had to, we had to have a talk about <laughs> <laughs> whether this guy should stay at the dojo. And I, I think we, uh, we managed to get him adopted by another dojo or something. <laughs> Or like told him that we all died or something like that. Because right. The Bud K catalog, it turned out, was only the tip of the iceberg with this guy. I mean, that's right. usually <laughs> the case with that kind of thing. It's um, 
I really quickly for folks who are interested in this too. Uh, there's a uh, there's this thing on Netflix that is like Netflix and BuzzFeed did this like series of like kind of short documentary like 15 kind of documentary I, I was actually films. just going to mention this yeah yeah and there's one about black preppers in particular because like prepping mm-hmm. is mostly a very white kind of like white suburban ex-urban type activity um, yeah. but there's like a short documentary on like black preppers both in rural America as well as urban America and it's really interesting and it's a it's a it's a cool way of like you know i think like the intersection of a lot of the stuff that we're talking about so i don't want to get into the specifics at all but like worth worth 20 minutes of your time to go watch that at some point here yeah and uh so so this so this book as like a vision of the apocalypse that you know that maybe you could prep for and that the people like some of the successful people in the book did in fact prep for like it's cool to see that a lot of the most useful skills and most effective skills are like orthogonal to like stockpiling shotguns in your basement oh Um, totally (laughs) right like the one of the one of the characters who is the most secure in this in this whole book in the middle of the apocalypse is the dude who owns like a kebab shop yep yeah yeah. Um, and Rook Singh, who has this small, reliable business um, selling something that everybody wants and everybody likes, is like he's doing about as well as he possibly can in the apocalypse. And right. no one no one even wants to kill him because then where would they get good shawarma? Right. Well, <laughs> it's also this thing of like, you know, so much of American prepping culture, as well as just American uh, post-apocalyptic literature from like the 50s on focuses on like, how does the individual survive? And like this book gets to the answer of that, which is that you don't. In, in a community. You, yeah. Like, yeah, you have to be in a community to survive the apocalypse. Like right. it doesn't work any other way because you can't have all the skills that you need. And like right. you need people growing chickens and people growing like medicinal herbs because not everyone can grow everything for themselves right yeah. and that's I such a the, good point yeah i thought the kids um there was like the the, yeah. the youth street gang were like a really really good example of this um mm-hmm. and how like you know they had all of these like really well-developed survival behaviors um but they also like one of the things that made them most effective was how like collective they were and yep. how yep. when when Rudy and his goons showed up in their territory, they were like, all right, we're all children, but we're all going to attack them. And some of us are going to get killed, but we're all going to do this. And because we're all committing to this attack, we're able to repel an attack by like really powerful adults. Yeah. Um, but some yeah. people had to lose their lives to do that. Um, but they were just they knew that going in. So like so mm-hmm. that they were they were. Uh, I think really affecting in terms of like how mm-hmm. well they were, they were prepared for a lot of the intense situations in the book. Yeah. I, totally so I, I love this point about communities and communities being how you survive apocalypse. To me, it, it's, it kind of relates to, um, it relate, it relates to a couple of different issues. One of them is it relates to this feminist critique of um, like masculine, like hyper-masculine Western fantasies. Because I think like a lot of post-apocalypse liter- literature in America is basically Westerns. Yes. Um, rewritten with like very, very minor changes. Um, and I, you know, I'm thinking about this in particular because of, you know, the road, but but also just like all the stories of survival where you're trying to like homestead in the middle of nowhere because there's no cities around you and there's no one else to like provide you with things these are all like a very very particular kind of western fantasy that that a lot of americans 
lived out in the night like a lot of men tried to live out in the 19th century and some still do and like they were only able to I do mean, that and my the, dad the, moved the, to alaska to live that shit out right like yeah <laughs> yeah and, and and they were importantly they were only able to do that because an apocalypse had already occurred in those places mm. you know like all of all westerns are already post-apocalyptic narratives because like the civilization that used to exist in that area was completely destroyed yeah so that's one what's one thing like that you know and this is a feminist retelling of that because like you know in fact the actual way that you settle an area is with families and communities like if mm -hmm. if if in fact what your project is is to like settle an unsettled area like you can't do that with like one fur trapper like you know who has enough guns like it's just not you, you need that's not a community like you can't create a community with one like lone wolf you know it just doesn't work mm -hmm. yeah. um and so like eventually at some point you need more people and like because that's literally what a community is and so like you know to to, to tell the story of to tell that to tell the story of like making a community not only outside of the imaginary context of an empty landscape imaginary because like the landscape is only empty because all the people were killed yeah um, <laughs> like to tell it outside of that imaginary landscape instead in a landscape where it's made very explicit that like there used to be other things here now it was changed because of these very specific policies and so we have to like rebuild something you know and to tell it from the perspective of like the pillars of this community are the people who are reasonable and okay with each other and also mostly women because the men are too busy being in a fucking gang so that so that's one thing it's money like, on the bud k catalog yeah, yeah. <laughs> getting getting they, a, they just getting a tactical stocking for the war on christmas <laughs> yeah so that's the one that's the feminist like the the feminist like sort of retelling of the of the hypermasculine aspect and the other thing is that like the the focus on community is so is so important um in terms of like how like the way that we construct communities every day, totally separate from a post-apocalyptic setting, like how do we create communities around ourselves as we interact with our neighbors and our, you know, local businesses and stuff? How do we like build relationships in a way that is effective? You know, what is the, what are the right ways for us to relate to our friends and neighbors, basically? Um, yeah. This book has like a really, you know, mature point of view on that question that i love you know yes and mm -hmm. and it, it manages to be applicable in any situation not just a post-apocalyptic one because it's like just about how you relate to people yes <laughs> yeah well i think that might be a good place to begin wrapping the conversation up um because i yeah. completely agree with that <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, it is the point <laughs> it is very much it's interesting while reading the book i wasn't necessarily thinking about oh this is really a book about like how important community is in the post-apocalyptic but like no it's a, it's a book incredibly about community and like i think mm -hmm. largely about community and um this conversation had been like a nice way to clarify that yes word Cool. Well, um, is there, do, do either of you guys have kind of like final thoughts, stuff we didn't get to that, you know, just like quick, quick fire about the book or anything else? 
none that I'll remember until I stop hitting record. <laughs> always, always. Well, it always you know, put it in a tweet or something. The one thing oh, I did man. actually want to say is um, we had mentioned a movie getting made kind of like based on the story of the book. Um, I actually looked it up and apparently it's it was released in 2018. So it's already out there and exists. Um, oh, I don't cool. know anything about it, if it's good or anything. Um, we had said maybe trying to do like a bonus episode on it. We won't get to that this month maybe at some point we can but you know i just wanted to clarify that since i had given like very incorrect information in the last episode <laughs> i was like oh it's coming out sometime in 2019 no it's already out um so that exists i think it's called um oh i should have written it. i forget what it's called but you can look it up and i'll link it's it brown girl notes. begins i found brown, it. yeah that's it that's it um so i have no idea if it's good or anything but we'll i'll probably take a look at some point and um the other one final thing is um so Brown Girl in the Ring is also the name of a song. Um, there's a Boney M version of it on Spotify. Mm-hmm. That's really fun. I also found a nice. Raffi version, which was really funny. Um, Raffi found a being what? like uh, a version by Raffi, the like Armenian, oh. like children's folk singer, like Baby Beluga oh. and stuff. Yeah. Oh, so he has a version Baby. of it. Love Raffi. Yep. <laughs> Phenomenal. Yeah. Um, so there's a, uh, there's a Jurassic five song, um, which has a minor key version of Brown Girl in the Ring. Nice. Which is, really awesome that's super cool i am <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah well we'll i'll include links to these all in the show notes too but just to um the song's really fun it's mentioned in the book like the lyrics are used at, at some point and uh so yeah and so i think i think that's it so you know at this point um mendez again thanks for coming on and talking to us for like you know four hours over the course of a few different days (laughs) i really appreciate it thank Uh, you dude it was awesome yeah and thanks for picking this book too it's something we've heard mentioned a few times so it was like really nice to have it all come together and get to be able to read it yeah yeah you're welcome i'm i've been really excited to read this book ever since I flipped through it really quickly in a, in a bookstore. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know anything about this book, except that I'll like it. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much for making this happen. Yeah, dude. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, cool. So, you know, uh, this has been Spectology, the Science Fiction Book Club podcast. Um, you can find us on spectology.com. You can also tweet us at spectologypod or spectologypod at gmail.com if you want to email us. Um, we love it hearing from people any ideas or stuff we'll often you know bring them up in in later episodes or stuff and and i'll reply to you um yeah also our music which you're listening to right now is done by wj you can find him on soundcloud our art is noah bradley you can go to noahbradley.com for his prints and stuff he's been really nice to let us use it as our cover art and um yeah you know we'll be back next month with another book uh we're pre-recording this so i actually don't know what we usually announce the book but i have no idea what it's going to be because we're like over a month early recording this so uh you know we'll mention it on twitter and you'll see it uh next week in your podcatcher hopefully so hopefully we'll we'll see you all soon again thanks guys appreciate it thank you thank you bye peace out